We're back with another TechBone episode. My guest today is none other than Meme Mastermind Trung Fan. For those of you who don't know Trung, he is a Bloomberg columnist, co-host of the Not Investment Advice podcast, writer of the Set Post newsletter, and former lead writer for The Hustle. In this episode, Trung and I talk about how he built a Twitter account to over 400,000 followers, how he sold a film script to Fox, and how memes are used as a form of culture and communication. Before we get started, this episode episode is brought to you by Ahrefs. Ahrefs is the all-in-one SEO tool set that makes it super simple to audit your site, analyze competitors, and track your ranking progress. I'm sure you've read one of their many excellent blog articles, but did you know that you can set up a free Ahrefs Webmaster Tools account? Head over to ahrefs.com and check it out. And now I wish you all the joy and all the laughs with none other than Trunk Fan. Three, two, one. Trunk, welcome. Yo, what's up, Kevin? How's it going, bro? We've been Thanks, circling each other on the internet. Uh, <laughs> well, actually, I'll tell you what. I think I emailed you because I, I subscribed to your newsletter. And uh, I said, hey, how's it going, man? Love your newsletter. You're like, well, actually, this is when I was working at The Hustle because I'm no longer at The Hustle, which is a business and tech newsletter. So you had applied to work at The Hustle or uh, going after the growth job. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I almost took it. It was between The Hustle and G2 a couple of years ago. Okay. Okay, G and G2 is the uh, kind of the review site for technology uh, services like SaaS. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I was super tempted. I mean, like you, uh, Sam, the whole team, obviously super talented and uh, been a hustle reader for a long time and, and trends reader and all that kind of stuff. It's obviously a, like a like a manufactory of amazing content. Yeah. So it was it was close, man. Well, you're you're an SEO guy, right? That's your specialty. SEO guy specialty, and then yeah, kind of kind of went a bit broader over time. But uh, fair yeah. enough. But hey, actually, like to 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 ask you a question about exactly that because it, it kind of a phenomenon to me, uh, to be honest. Like you have three, over three hundred sixty thousand Twitter followers. You like got retweeted by Elon Musk, which you know in my mind is kind of the, the big technically not honor. retweet, just 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 commenting, no retweet, just commenting. <laughs> okay, so, so maybe that's still to come then. But uh, yeah, like major badge of honor in the internet world. Former The Hustle Writer, which I have the highest regards for, successful newsletter, you have a new podcast. How would you describe to people what you do? Uh, that's a great question. I tell most people, and when people ask me what I do and what I plan to do, is like, I just want to make content. Like I've been doing it basically my entire life. Like before, Prior to writing at The Hustle, which is quite public-facing, I spent about 10 years in tech and finance. But in those roles, I was writing like equity analyst reports or I was writing uh, internal reports uh, for uh, the team uh, based around you know financial analytics or, or, or research. So I've always been creating content. Now it's just a lot more public-facing. And uh, that's my answer. I, I make content. Uh, I, that's what I plan to do. That's what I enjoy doing. And uh, I've, uh, as you've noted, I seem to have found an audience for it. Whether or not I have an audience, my day is not going to be different, right? Like I'm before I was on Twitter, which has really only been in the last 18 months, I spent three to four hours a day reading and I spent an hour or two writing, right? That was my day. And it's basically the exact same now. I waste a little bit more time on Twitter. I'm not going to lie. Like I get sucked into these dopamine loops. Uh, I, I'm trying to manage, uh, quote unquote, going viral is a little bit annoying in the sense because my son hates it and my wife hates it because they know when I'm not present and I, I mean it's a shit it's shitty right to be very honest it's like it's uh you're not present with your family and uh, we try to put guardrails in the sense that we'll try to go out and not bring our phones and 
it's just stuff that everybody struggles with with the internet, man. Like you're going up against uh, the smartest data scientists and ML engineers in the world trying to keep you hooked and they're winning. So that's my, that's it, right? That's my takeaway. Yeah, I feel seen right now because I have these like weird habits where I don't even realize I'm picking out my phone or my pocket and I, I, I open Twitter. Oh, like, it's crazy, man. even realizing, man. And boom, I'm in the app. <laughs> and then the first thing I see is your tweets. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, like to me, you, you kind of have figured out this this recipe of how to engineer, first of all, amazing Twitter threats. Like you talk about machine learning engineers creating these dopamine loops and making us develop these unconscious habits to open their apps. To me, you to, you did the same thing where I opened your tweets and, and your Twitter threads. I barely pass a thread that I cannot not open. How, what's your, how do you do it? Well, I mean, I think there's two components of it, right? One is, I'll be very honest, like there's a lot of, the first tweet's a little bit clickbaity sometimes, right? Like the standard stuff that, uh, the tactics that you'd use for the hustle, where you try to get people to open your newsletter, right? Is like, you're sending out to 1.5 million plus a day. Like I used to write when I was working at the hustle that uh, my articles, I would choose an article if I could have a good headline. If I couldn't have a good subject line, I'd probably ditch it because the reality is that, and not necessarily in a bad way, right? Is like, maybe this story isn't going to be worth the reader's time if I can't get a three to four word subject line. Literally, that's like, I, if I couldn't get a four or five words or less, I think five words is a max I do for an email subject line. If I couldn't uh, tuck in five words or less, I would probably dip the story. So you're, you're trying to get subject lines open. I mean, Morning Brew, obviously, with 4 million subscribers, they're amazing at this. They write really good subject lines. And then uh, after the subject line, the, the, you know, the, the first couple words of the email, they're very good at that. I mean, that skill, it's copywriting. You, you have to be careful not to um, give false pretenses to what the actual content is, right? So Facebook actually is changing uh, a lot of their video um, I'll go uh, recently. They just announced in an engineering blog post. It's like we got to get rid of this uh, clickbait stuff. The same things happened a couple of years ago with Up Only. You remember Up Only? We had the the biggest like uh, curiosity gap uh, headlines. It's like you won't believe this, or it's like the BuzzFeed thing, right? It's like I get it. You you have to apply those, but you just got to do it tastefully. So to answer your question is like, why do you have that feeling? So the first part is like, I mean, I do write a little bit in a sense of. It is clickbaiting since there's big numbers. There's a lot often numbers are involved because people just love anchoring to numbers. There's a little bit of the curiosity gap where you're like, oh, I need to find out what the rest of the story is. You know, nothing, nothing I'm saying is groundbreaking. But the other part of it is, I think it's just, I've been doing it consistently for a while and I, I try very hard not to put out shitty content. That's just it. It's like, if people have read 20 of my threads and they liked all 20 of them, there's a high likelihood they're gonna read number 21, right? And don't get me wrong, like there have been times when I got a little bit too thirsty for engagement and I'm like, I'll do anything to kind of uh, hack the algo. I put out stuff that I'm not super proud of, but uh, more recently, like uh, I've, I've done a little bit less on Twitter threads. I'm writing more long form uh, for my newsletter. I write for Bloomberg. I like long form uh, more because they're, I mean, it's long form. I mean, the, the thread format is very, condensed and you're leaving out so much information you can communicate a lot but long form obviously long form and uh the the one thing i will say the last thing i will say about the thread is this it's difficult for me to uh to rope in humor and tie in humor in my threads because of how small the space is right so i will try to max a thread at 15 tweets and there's not a lot of space uh for humor in there so that's the other reason why i like writing long form more it's like i can have my actual voice inside the topic so that that that's my explanation. A little bit clickbaity on the on the first tweet, but also trying to be consistent and giving high quality. 
you know, it's only clickbaity if you don't follow up the premise, but if you can actually deliver, then it's, it's like click worthy or whatever kind of word you want to throw at it. So how much time do you spend on the, on the headline or on the first tweet compared to the rest of the story? Uh, actually not a ton in the sense it's the same, uh, principle as I had with writing at the hustle. I'm probably not going to write a thread if I, the first tweet I know can't be good. Like. I'm almost just writing that first tweet and just banging out, like just testing it and doing it quickly. Like, oh, this is like a good first tweet. I'll probably just follow up with the rest of the story now. I, I wouldn't say I spent a lot more time, uh, quote unquote, but uh, it is definitely the most important. And I will I will choose to do one or not do one based on whether or not the first tweet's good, similar to the, head, the subject line in uh, The Hustle. How much time do you spend on a Twitter thread on average? Um... I mean, some of my, the ones that I'm proud of is like the same as writing a thousand word uh, article or 1500 word article. It'll be 10 to 15 hours of research and, and really trying to condense it. The one I always bring up is I did one on ASML. They make uh, machines that make semiconductors. And actually the reason why I really like that one, and they hit, it hit the top of Hacker News. And the reason why I enjoyed that one though was because I, there's a lot of videos and GIFs in there. And that's one time where I was like, this is actually like a piece of information and content that is unique to Twitter in the sense of like, you're using everything that each tweet allows, right? Embedding the videos, embedding the gifts. You can do that in an article. It's just not the same though when you're scrolling. Like it's like most, cause a lot of tweet threads are really just text, right? Which I get it. Twitter is a text-based platform, but you can use those embed functionalities and it's going to be even more enjoyable to read than if you were to read an article. Uh, because obviously people spend so much time on mobile with their uh, on Twitter. That is an example of a thread where I'm like, I wish I could do more of this kind. And that, that and to answer your original question, that was like a 15 hour one, right? That was like, I was basically writing uh, a full on article at that point. Yeah, it probably takes, it takes that kind of uh, time commitment to, to craft something that really stands out from the noise, but it kind of reflects in your in your uh, kind of followership and the engagement that you get. So it's probably totally worth it. Another thing that, that really blows my mind about your content is how you bring in humor were you was it always easy for you to make people laugh well i mean i so when people ask me and i said this before i don't know if i said it on i might have said it on the non-investment advice podcast with uh Bilal zadi and jack butcher the podcast i do i may or may not i don't even remember anymore but uh so the real reason i do twitter threads is okay everybody knows that the only way to really grow your audience fast is threads right so you are seeing a lot of growth hacking, which to be honest, a lot of it's not great, right? It is clogging up the timeline. People will get very annoyed by it. I, I don't have a perception on it and people can do whatever they want. But the reason I do it is the only reason I want a bigger audience is because I love making jokes and making memes. And that just means more people sees it. And, that, and that's the honest truth. Uh, <laughs> and to answer your original questions, like how about always, man, I've always been involved in, I mean, as 10 years ago, I sold a comedy film Fox. Like I thought I was going to be a Hollywood comedy writer. It never ended up working out. It's, I mean, it's just difficult to break into Hollywood. And now you don't need to, the reality is that there's so many platforms now where you don't have to wait for a gatekeeper, right? Everybody knows this. It's the whole gatekeeper theme is like, I don't need uh, a Hollywood studio uh, to tell me that a script I worked on for 18 months is okay. And now the world can think I'm funny with Twitter. I should have done this a long time ago. Twitter's been out 2006. I've only been using it since 2019. Is I could have just been pumping jokes all day, right? And uh, actually in university, I had, a, I had a pretty popular blog that was just comedy. So to I mean, go back to your original questions, like I've always loved comedy. Um, it's, it's the thing that gets me most excited. 
And when people, you know, why are you like uh, so thirsty for growing your audience? It's like, honestly, man, I just want people to laugh. And I, I just, it's just like a non-stream. It's a non-stop stream of consciousness that I just like kind of blast out there. <laughs> What's your favorite stand-up comedian? Oh, oh, favorite? Oh, that's a good question. Um, the last, the last live event I did actually pre-COVID was I went to Bill Burr. He's probably my oh. favorite comedian now. Uh, he's amazing. Bill Burr's amazing. Uh, I'll tell you a thing about comedians that I noticed actually is uh, a lot of the uh, best comedians started out doing very clean comedy. Like Bill Burr used to have a clean act, uh, but he's actually now he doesn't give a shit. Like he just curses and says whatever he wants. There's some other example. I mean, one not great one is Bill Cosby. Actually, not Cosby. Sorry, Bob Saget also started off. Uh, he's known as a very dirty comic. But his reputation was from Full House as a kind of this clean and, a, you know, very sad. Uh, rest in peace. Uh, he passed away recently. George Carlin started off as a clean comic, ended up super dirty. Um, uh, not dirty, but like willing to push it, the envelope. So like the, the reason I bring uh, these com uh, comics up is they, to me, are the ones that I kind of look up to in the sense, you know, you, you, when the, the more you stop caring what other people think, which is what they were doing when they were being uh, more clean and a more PG act is the less you care about that, the more you can be yourself and have something that's actually unique and different. I'm, I'm not saying to go out there and say whatever you want and to be an asshole, but uh, to, stand, to stand out or even just have your own voice, these guys decided that, you know what, I'm just going to say whatever I want. And then not just guys, right? Sarah Silverman is similarly, she will say whatever she wants. Not to agree with everything they say, but I like the attitude of not uh, censoring yourself and... Uh, and be willing to say different thoughts, right? It's comedy. It's comedy, man. Yeah, yeah. I'm fascinated by stand-up comedy. Huge fan. Uh, and, and part of what fascinates me so much is the level of observation that some stand-up comedians Absolutely. bring to the game, right? Like, it's, a, it's not just that they're funny. It's also that they're funny because they talk about some stuff that happens all the time, but nobody really notices it. Nobody has that awareness for it. And they make it so blatantly obvious that you're like oh my god yeah we're all like this actually this is crazy right to my mind it's it's in part at least engineered not everything there's obviously talent you have and timing and all this kind of stuff that comes on top of it but there's also some sort of like a um a, a level in my mind to uh or an art to dissecting this and making like like pulling material out of everyday situations so my question to you would be when you when you create your memes, do you have any, is it all just instinct and gut feeling or is there some sort of a step-by-step -step or a formula you go through in your head when you, when you craft them? No, I can tell you, you can train yourself to make good memes. And the way you do it is this. You uh, go to, uh, go to uh, imgflip.com. You know that website that has all the meme templates or download the Mematic app. Visualize what all these, the meme templates are, right? Because every meme template explains as you noted, a human behavior. Like the most famous meme template is probably the one of uh, the guy holding one girl's hand and then looking at the other girl, right? And what, what, I mean, what abstract away, what is that actually saying, right? It's that your attention is averting to a new shiny object. So anytime that that event happens, right? Where there's a new shiny object, you need to map that joke onto that meme. But there's like that for everything. There's uh, the Drake meme of uh, where he's shaking his hand and like uh, approving or disapproving. So anytime you see something that has been approved and now becomes disapproved, or you see uh, two contrasting ideas, you go to that uh, meme template. So you can school yourself to understand, okay, 
what's the best meme for an outrageous uh, reaction to something? What's the best meme uh, for just an, uh, uh, something really sad that happened, but there's like a, a, a kernel of a humor in it? Like there's a meme template for that, right? And if you just feed yourself, literally feed yourself these memes, which uh, the way I do it is I literally just look at um, image flip. I'll spend a lot of time on that and Mematic, see what's trending. I mean, the most recent one, obviously, was uh, when Will Smith slapped uh, Chris Rock. I mean, what was the abstraction of that meme template, right? It was a disapproval of something. And so everybody took that and applied it to their own industry. You can definitely have a roster of meme templates ready. Now the question is, do you have taste, right? And, and, and that's the other part of it. Can you actually craft the language in it that makes it funny? That's where the humor is. I don't know if that can necessarily be taught, uh, but you can be taught... And you can learn to have this roster of meme templates. So when people ask, that's how I say, it's like, yes, you can learn. You can learn how to react, uh, whether or not you, I mean, let's be honest, some people are just not funny. That's just a reality <laughs> situation, right? Uh, yep. But at the minimum, you you can understand the templates and just keep shooting. And again, if you want to, if you don't want to, whatever, it doesn't bother me. And, uh, all, and the last thing I say is go to Reddit, look at the uh, meme subreddit, look at the dank meme subreddit, follow, there's so many funny subreddits. That's where a lot of the memes, I mean, technically they start on 4chan, but a lot of them end up on Reddit. That's how you school yourself. You, like, If you want to actually put in a process of learning how to be quote unquote funny or a meme on, on the internet, that's how you would do it. Uh, but again, taste can't be taught. So that's all I'll say. <laughs> I'll, take a, I'll take a big note of that. Uh, one thing that I'm super bullish about in this whole SEO and content world is that a, a lot of people and companies just churn out a lot of commodity content, right? It's just all the same. They use this, they do the same research. It, it tastes the same, smells the same. It's like, you know, like, like a very cheap all-you-can-eat buffet. Whereas what actually drives results is more the kind of fine dining stuff, the tailored course menu that you only get once in a lifetime. It's this like expensive endeavor, but it really stands out, right? If you if you think about the memories that people have on their food, nobody thinks about the cheap buffet they have in Vegas. Okay, maybe maybe here and there, but you know, you get the drift. But yeah. everybody thinks about the Michelin star restaurant experience that they had. And in my mind, you create a lot of fine dining uh material and you, you don't have any kind of cheap all you can eat buffet stuff so we, we spoke about the humor copywriting type of aspect to the content we create what about the research aspect you told me about how much how many hours you spend reading uh analyst type of content reports and whatnot like what what does your day-to-day -day look like in that sense what are the resources you you use and how do you how do you extract valuable insights from those reports yeah no the that's a great question I don't think there's uh, a super, like, uh, here's a step-by-step -step answer. I think it's probably something similar to that you've done. I mean, you you write uh, a weekly newsletter. I mean, how long have you been doing uh, your new newsletter? Well, I started writing weekly about two years ago. Okay. So, and you're reading, I mean, how many hours a week are you reading for that newsletter? Probably 10, 20 hours? Yeah, I think it's now around 10, probably. Yeah. So, it, it just all compounds, right? That That's a real answer is, like, if you read a lot from your mid-teens to, so I'm, I'm in my late, I'm in my I'm late thirties, I'll say 37 years old. I've read nonstop for like 20 years, right? All that knowledge just compounds. That's just the reality. There's no shortcuts. Uh, I do have like a daily diet. Uh, I'll read the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, New York Times, like just to, because that was basically my profession for the last decade. I, I read books a lot less now, unfortunately, but there's a period where I was reading a couple hundred books a year. Uh, I don't do that anymore, which kind of sucks. Uh, but 
you don't have as much time uh, with a kid, right? So unfortunately, <laughs> that's a sacrifice you have to make. Yeah, it, everything compounds. Like to answer your question, like where do you get all these ideas is like Elon Musk has uh, a theory on knowledge, right? He's like, you need to build the tree trunk, which is like the core principles of an industry uh, or a field. And then over the course of your life, as you read more, you just start attaching branches to that tree. Like not intentionally, but like I spent a long time reading about uh, 19th century US history, uh, like after the Civil War, right? Well, I don't intentionally read about it anymore, but I might read a Wall Street Journal article that mentions uh, a financial policy that happened uh, in the Reconstruction era after the Civil War. And I'm like, oh, cool. I'm going to add that to my tree, right? But you need to have the base. So the one thing I will say is that there, there has to be at least one period in your life where you are just consuming like a, a comical amount of information. You can do that when you're young. Uh, it's a lot harder to read a lot when you're older. Uh, not to make excuses around it, because as we mentioned earlier, I waste a lot of time on Twitter, like just getting a dopamine. But uh, I uh, I read a lot less now, but I spent a ton of time in my youth reading. And uh, that's something that just pays off eventually, no matter what happens. Was there any way you you stored insights? Did you take like voracious notes or... Or did you just soak I, it all up in your brain? I tried every. I mean, let's be honest. I've probably forgotten 90% of the stuff I read, right? I've tried every note-taking thing ever. I just never stuck to one. I am not uh, I'm not that good at it. There are people that are really good. Uh, I'm not that person. And I'm happy. I don't care. That's just, <laughs> I'm fine with it. It's not the end of the world. Uh, there was a time when I cared a lot. I'm like, oh, how am I not going to retain all this? And then you just care less and less and like, I built the habits I know I can do every day, which is like, I'm just going to read and make some content and you know, hopefully it can retain as much as possible. Uh, I, I know that there could be processes in place where like, like Tiago Forte has that course, right? Build a second brain. If I really wanted to, I should probably take that, but I don't know if I'd be able to stick with it. And I've heard really good things about it, but uh, it's just not my personality. Yeah, it seems to work for you too. Speaking of that base real quick, what's your... What are like one or two or maybe three book recommendations to build a solid knowledge base to then attach, you know, branches and trees to like, what, what are your, your favorite picks there? Uh, I mean, again, it, it's a, a, the field of interest. Um, I, I'll give one book uh, because it really, and it's really relevant now. Uh, it's called, it's by Daniel Jurgen. The book's called the prize. It's about the oil industry from the late 1800s uh, uh, up until I think the end of the 20th century. And it's just basically, he, he's the world's probably primo, uh, preeminent expert on the energy industry. And that book has been called the Bible by, uh, I have a very good friend that works uh, for very, I mean, his family owns a very successful energy business in Europe. And uh, he says that book around their family is called the Bible uh, for their industry. So the prize. And well, actually, the reason why I'd, I, I'd recommend that is First of all, it's like eight, 900 pages. And uh, so you get the full, you get everything from basically the first oil find in Pennsylvania in the late 1800s, uh, all the way as, as shortly after the first Gulf War in 91. But what's good about it is that is a great way to quote unquote, create a base, right? So that can like, you read that and now you have the tree trunk and you're like, oh, I need to find other tree trunks for a particular field or industry that the prize has done for me. I'd have to think about other comparable tree trunk books, but like that is one for the energy industry is, which is just like, and then he had a, he wrote a sequel to it. I think it's called the quest I read both of those in like a month. And I'm like, this is amazing. Like, I feel like I know a lot about the energy industry, I'm not nearly even close to being an expert, but like 
this is such a good tree trunk. What, what, how did you find that book? And what, why did you pick a book about energy and, and oil? Oh, there was a time when I was just like, man, I would just Google like, what are the 100 best books of the 20th century? And like, what are the 100 best books, uh, business books? And I just like, okay, I'm going to have that. Like what I was like really into reading, I would just Google those, you know, people make lists all the time. And I'm like, I just buy those books on, on, on Kindle and start fingering to the, through them. But uh, when I was really into reading, that's what I was doing. I'm like, I know you can't, don't depend 100% on what people say, but it's always a good shortcut to start uh, uh, with that. 100%. And so we, we spoke a lot about text, tweeting, long-form writing, short-form writing, reading. Uh, and now I want to switch to audio. So you just recently started the Not Investment Advice podcast. Um, what made you go into audio and how do you think about creating audio content similar to what you learned from text content? Um, so yeah, we're actually officially a year old now. So I do that with uh, Jack Butcher and Bilal Zaidi. And I think the audio side was, well, the first one is a joke that everybody is, has their own podcast, right? That's a joke. Uh, but you know, we started it, we knew that we we're going to give it an honest try. And I think uh, the stat that uh, my co-host Jack has brought up before was 90% of podcasts don't last more than five episodes, right? You, you've probably seen something similar. And we're just like, listen, we know we're going to hit this bar. We know we're going to hit 30 episodes, right? It's like, we're all professionals. Uh, we've always had professional careers. We know we can put in that type of commitment. Uh, let's just do it. And maybe honestly, I enjoy it. I love chatting every week with Bilal and Jack. Jack and Bilal are much more involved in Web3 and crypto, uh, particularly Jack than I am. And I get to learn every week with these guys. And and uh, I think it's just a great a great place to learn with them. But also goes back to the humor thing is, uh, listen, you can write funny stuff. But, and I've always said this, is the humor, you can't turn the dial on humor to 11 unless you're in person, right? It's like you're reading it, you're laughing to yourself. But when you're with somebody else, you get that human evolutionary thing where you're literally sharing. It's like yawning, right? I mean, when you yawn, people just unconsciously yawn. Laughing has a similar mechanism where if you hear a room full of people laughing, like you might not be laughing as hard as the person laughing the hardest, but you're going to laugh. You know, you know what I mean? So that's what I enjoy. It goes back to the humor. Like I, I just love humor. And, uh, and my way to share it is with other people because... It's just not the same, just writing. Yeah, hundred percent. That, that's why they they used to like tune in these fake laughs and these. Like, oh yeah, exactly shows. right. The sitcoms. It's it's yeah. a it's a similar yawning uh, mechanic. I mean, evolutionarily, there's like people have done studies on it, and I mean, obviously, with any of these uh, kind of sociology type studies, you you don't know about the uh, the the replicability of it or how true it is. But it's like, you know, there. The thesis around why laughter is sharing and shareable, it makes a lot of sense, right? It helps groups come together. And uh, the the laughing function, uh, you have the mirror neurons, right? Like there's certain things with uh, a mother and, and, and children where they have the mirror neurons where they copy what their, their mom's doing. Uh, but similarly with laughing, it's like you're, you're enacting the same part of your brain. So we talk about the dopamine drip, but I mean, you, you, you get dopamine and serotonin when you laugh and that brings people together. Do you think that's all? That there's also a version of that when it comes to uh, viral tweets or people sharing tweets that kind of social proof that a tweet has been shared a thousand times, and people kind of like like have some sort of a mirroring function to think that oh, actually this meme is super funny, whereas had it been not shared at all, do you think that there's a different reaction to that? I think it's I mean probably similar in the sense of if you have like a physical reaction to a meme or tweet, like 
if I have if I look at something and I physically laugh, I'm like, I have to share this. Like the the Dilbert comic, Scott Adams talks about it. He has like a rule where if he his kind of uh, humor gauges, can I get somebody to physically do something? Like if I if you write something uh, or make a meme that's so funny that somebody actually moves their finger to go LOL or uh, crying eyes is like that's when you know like that's his level it's like you've gone somebody to physically move i'm not saying that that's not a huge sacrifice to move your fingers but a lot of tweets get nothing and a lot of people don't move their fingers ever but if something makes you laugh so hard that you're compelled to go oh my god this is hysterical like crying laughing emoji you're physically doing something to answer your question if you're getting a lot of retweets and these kind of emojis it's like yeah you're doing something right you're getting people to react yeah, totally. And you also mentioned that you enjoy long form because there's it, it might it might be easier to insert humor. Like like one thing that blows me away, honestly, about how you write for your newsletter is that it starts super funny. It's almost like memes first, and then you pull readers into some of the facts and some of the the insights, right? What what moved you to invest more in your newsletter, and what are some of the the like goals and the ways you want to use that newsletter to build a following? I want to write certain articles that will be able they can last and exist for searches right like i want them to have this kind of long tail effect it's like i want to write i couldn't find it a long article about warren buffett's investment in apple so i wrote 2000 words on it i'm like hopefully this is a this is a fairly evergreen piece in the sense of like whatever happens with the apple uh, uh, investment for berkshire hathaway in the following years the logic for it and why he did it is going to stay the same, right? And people can understand and read about that. I just, a lot of my articles similarly are of this, like I wrote one about why LinkedIn, uh, people think it's so cringe. And I found a bunch of engineering uh, videos uh, from the LinkedIn engineering team. I tied that in. And uh, I think that can exist for a long time. That's different than a tweet thread, right? And the, like, the LinkedIn one is I, I wrote it like from a humor basis. Like I just wanted to make fun of the entire thing. And, uh, it, but it, it started off, as a joke, but then it turned out, I'm like, oh, I actually think I figured out why it is the way it is. And uh, when I wrote it and I published it, I got uh, direct messages from a lot of LinkedIn, uh, former LinkedIn employees or LinkedIn employees are like, oh, this is pretty spot on. Yeah, to answer your question is like, the, the definitely more of the evergreen uh, anchor pieces that you can continuously share, um, that have longer uh, shelf life and, uh, I'm not that I'm an SEO guy, but you know the value in having anchor uh, content, right? For sure, yeah. Also, it improves your discovery for either new people or people who already know you. So, totally understand why you want to open in like a, like a new channel besides maybe social or even just like the the regular newsletter subscribers. I think that's what one of the huge benefits of having some sort of a platform that allows you to make the newsletter content discoverable, like Substack. Like your newsletter is on Substack. Search engines can find it. I did move it. I moved content. it over to, uh, sorry, I just want to say I moved, uh, I, it was on Substack, which is fantastic, by the way. But uh, I moved it over to Workweek, which is a, uh, a new media business uh, founded by my former uh, hustle colleagues, Adam Ryan, who you might know. You, you know Adam, yeah. Uh, so Adam founded yeah. Workweek with Becca Sherman. And uh, they're basically, they're helping uh, me create, they're giving me the space to create and they're taking all the backend stuff out of the way. So Substack was great. Uh, I just want to clarify, I'm with uh, uh, working with Workweek now. Yeah, and I was on Substack too initially. And then I also moved like to Ghost now. So uh, very, very similar concept. And maybe, maybe you can talk a little bit about 
uh, work week. So you mentioned it's more of like a like a backend solution that helps you manage all of all of this. No, stuff, so to just seems- be yeah, so just to fully clarify, it, it, it's a new media model. Uh, uh, primarily around uh, B2B. So the idea is uh, creator first. So work week, uh, Adam's thesis is that, and I loved your comment on this, is the future of media will be creator first uh, in the sense of people are much more, uh, have much more affinity and like individuals more than like brands, right? And uh, the easiest way to put it is, go look at uh, CNBC's official Twitter account and when they tweet out an article, right? Look how much engagement it gets versus if I tweet something or somebody else with a big audience tweets it out, right? It's like night and day, individual versus the brand. And not to pick on CNBC, but it could be anything. And Adam and Becca's thesis is let's get a bunch of verticals, uh, healthcare, cannabis, uh, fintech. Let's find the individuals with big personalities in those or the potential that have big personalities. And we will help them grow that brand. And then those individuals get to do the entire creator playbook. So the, for me, they're helping a lot with the back end uh, in terms of administration, growth, monetization. But, you know, they it can be a lot more. And with other creators, they can help, first of all, help them even have the confidence to create in their known field, right? And where the expertise is. Uh, very much a, a new media a model. Yeah, I, I believe in it. That's why, you know, I partnered up with them. Yeah, I think the time is right for creator accelerators and incubators, similar to how you would have like like influencers and you like like they these incubators t- like try to go out and find people who are just doing really well on TikTok or whatever and then then raise them to the bar. I think it's the same thing for creators and like fascinated with this whole creator economy and and how as you said like attention shifted away from brands and more to the people and and thought leaders and experts. And you see that concept happening everywhere, right? Like it's not just in in um in content and media. It's also in, in the world of SEO where search engines pay so much more attention to who actually created the content right. and if sites demonstrate a certain expertise and all that kind of stuff. What does the what does the end game look like for you, for your creator career or your creator ambitions? Like what where do you hope to to land this? It's it's like I said at the very beginning, uh if I'm ten years from now still creating content, if my day's the same, I'm happy. I'm sure the aperture of opportunities and the platforms I'm writing on and the people I work with will change, but my day-to-day is not going to change. That's just the reality. So that that's it, right? Maybe the opportunities get bigger. Maybe I work with more interesting people, but I think the, at the end of the day, the content is what it's going to be. Can I make funny and insightful content? And can I do that 10 years from now or 20 years from now? I think that is the end game. It's just like, keep doing what I'm doing because I'm enjoying it. Um, what is, how do you think about monetization of the content, like making a living? Like, what do you think is, 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 is like the user friendliest way? Is it ads, subscriptions, merch, all of the above? How do you think about monetization? Yeah, I, I, for subscribers, uh, this isn't going to be surprising anybody that's listening. You know, if you have a good niche, uh, you should, and then you, you can publish and you have high value. Like if you are the number one healthcare deal guy in the world, right? and you write every week about healthcare deals, you could probably charge a subscription for your healthcare deals, right? Uh, but I'm much more generalist. And I've, I've, and as I mentioned previously, I wanted to build an audience just for laughing and memes. That gives me obviously more service area to do ad-based. I don't, I'm not married to either. Uh, just the nature of my content, I don't think is very subscriber friendly because I honestly wouldn't pay for my own content because it's not niche enough. Uh, but I'm happy to have advertisers on it. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, makes makes perfect sense. Speaking of merchandise, you also had this great piece of content about uh, shares and Shopify and 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 Toby's Toby's tweet. Do you want to touch on that real quick? Yeah, listen, man, you guys are the Shopify, so I'll give you the TLDR. Happy to have your opinion on it, but you know, uh, Toby uh, tweeted out that uh, in his opinion, um, I might be butchering this. You tell me if I'm wrong, but he basically said. The relationship between the stock market and a company is similar to sports betters and the players on the field. They're kind of related, but irrelevant. So that was the pitch. My article for Bloomberg was essentially saying, I don't know if that was a correct, it might be an analogy mistake more than anything, right? Uh, he tried to clarify to say, you know, uh, that's not exactly what I was saying, but basically my position was, if your stock's down 40, 50% this year, which it is, you obviously don't want your employees looking at the stock price every day, but that's just human nature, right? They're looking and their compensation is very much tied to the stock price. I mean, last year, Shopify uh, said they wanted to hire 2021 engineers. I don't know if they did, but uh, they also spent uh, our, uh, the 330 million in stock-based compensation to recruit thousands of engineers. Well, a lot of those engineers now, those options are underwater. A lot of those RSUs, when they vest, are going to be a lot less than when they expected, right? So yes, of course you don't want your employees looking at the stock price every single day because you shouldn't be making decisions on a day-to-day -day basis looking at stock price. But if you have a team of six people and three of them might leave because their compensation package is a lot smaller and they're getting poached, well, now your day-to-day -day is actually affected because you can't make a decision if half your team's gone, right? So I think that's where the error in that analogy was, I don't know what his full feeling on it is because it was just, you know, Twitter's the worst uh, platform to do that, right? It's uh, you're 280 characters and then uh, your your words get taken out of context. But that single first tweet was like, I'm like, you know what? Yes, in a perfect world, you don't want people making decisions on day-to-day -day basis based on stock price. The problem is this, if you're losing half your team because they're going to greener pastures, you can't not make decisions based on it because now your team's affected. If you're the head of that team and your hours just went up that week, you're going to have home stresses because you got to tell your wife or your husband, hey, I, I, you got to take care of the kid because half my team's gone. I got to work 30 extra hours this week, right? So uh, that was my, my position. And uh, I, I love your thoughts about it, man. You're working there and I hope I didn't uh, hit too hard of a hot button issue. No, no, no. I, I wanted to have that conversation. I think, I think there's something to be said about both uh, positions, right? Like just to be transparent, right? I joined when the stock was scratching $1,600. It's now scratching $700, right? That's a, that's a difference. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, for some people, this could be, this could make a huge difference in their retirement and, and, and other things like, like, you know, buying a house or whatnot, which is super difficult these days. But yeah, it's kind of also this mixed thing. Cause had I joined, say for example, if I were to join today and I get the same money in RSUs, I get a lot more stock I have a, it can, it can be yep. so much better. Right. So I think there is, there's a little bit of flexibility also to see if people who join at the top and now are at the bottom to see if you can top them off or help give them, them a cash out. option, right? Give them a cash. Well, option. let me, let me, let me say this. So the, uh, I mentioned that the tweet format isn't great for communicating these ideas, which is totally fair, right? It's just not podcasts like this are obviously way better. You can talk through an idea. So Mark Zuckerberg went on Tim Ferriss's podcast and address directly what, like, how are your employees feeling? 
your stock has got completely crushed. I mean, there's obviously a relationship between Spot, uh, Shopify and uh, Facebook too, right? Because of the ads business. Uh, yep. the, uh, Facebook ads are such a big part of Shopify stores. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg on the podcast with Tim Ferriss said, listen, when you're, there's, when there's turmoil in the market, even if it's not specific to your company, people are going to psychologically going to have a tougher ability to look long-term because I get Toby's instinct, right? It's like, you can't look day to day and make decisions based on stock price today because you're trying to build a business for 10 years, right? Toby and the team have done an absolutely amazing job, right? Uh, and they've been doing it with a long-term vision. But to Mark's point, Mark Zuckerberg's point is like, it's tough to have that long-term vision. Well, A, it's, it's a lot easier when you're Mark Zuckerberg, you've been through it. But if you're an employee at the company, right? Sure. He recognizes that how can you expect them to have this long-term vision? Every day they're waking up. They're not worth $100 billion like Mark is. They're losing significant wealth. And they can't be expected to come in and be like, hey, I want to think long-term today. I'm not going to be worried about the day-to-day -day, uh, psychology of seeing my paper wealth just completely disappear. So, Of course. So what I would say is this, if Toby wants to come on the Non-Investment Advice Podcast to talk about this, uh, we're, we're more than happy to have him because I think there's a lot more nuance and uh, he could tell his story much better. Yeah, I'm all for it. I'm, I'm going to send him a Slack real quick. Um, <laughs> no, all serious. I, I think it's a great conversation to have, right? Like this whole like, like equity and, and, and pros and cons and, and long-term thinking. I can tell you so much that this, this idea of building a company that lasts 100 years is very top of mind at Shopify. And that's where, you know, it's, it's a total perspective thing where uh, someone like a Toby can, you know, it's easier maybe to, to picture for him than maybe some, for some other people. And it goes to another principle, which is that, you know, when you start a company, typically people you hire won't care as much about the company as you will, right? So total, total perspective thing. And, and also like a very foundational or fundamental conversation about the value of, of stock and RSUs how to think about comp and like how to how to retain people i mean there's so much to that but yeah it's it's what i will say is like it's yeah it's it's tough to see you know your equity half um and then maybe maybe even, even less it's a, it's a tricky one uh but man i'm gonna let you go i know we're we're coming up on or we're pretty much at time here before i uh let you go where can people find and follow you oh yeah so at trunk t fan uh t-r-u-n-g-t-p-h-a-n that's where everything is. Um, and if you want to listen to the Not Investment Advice podcast and hopefully get some laughs, please do. Uh, open invitation to Toby. So <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll just leave that one there. Thank you so much, Kevin. <laughs> Three, two, one.